Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 322 and my conversation with Western Carolina University Director of Percussion Studies, Adam Grow. As I'm writing this, I have just completed my classroom teaching for the semester, and we're getting ready for finals, juries, lots of grading, all that. It's nice to be done with that portion of the semester and get ready to hunker down into finishing this thing off mode, which I hope goes by nice and quickly. Fun side note, Marching Mizzou will be appearing next at the Gasparilla Bowl in Tampa, Florida on December 23rd, and they're playing the Demon Deacons of Wake Forest. That's right. My first time as an employee of Mizzou, where they're playing my undergrad alma mater. Doubly special because this is the final year that my undergrad band director, Dr. Kevin Bowen, will be with the band. He's retiring after this academic year. I've gotten some gruff from friends on social media about who I'm choosing to back. Folks, come on. Honestly, a win-win all around, but I have to go with my employer right now, and I'd actually really like to see Mizzou win a bowl game for the first time in nearly a decade. I was honestly completely shocked by the matchup because it hadn't occurred to me that this was going to be a possibility. And that's mostly because Wake Forest got off to a great start this year in college football and then backtracked severely towards the end, while Mizzou had to win a lot of games late in season to end up at their 6-6 and record. But it's happening. Mostly, though, I really hope that there's a great showing of both Mizzou and Wake folks at the game because it would be great to see some old friends. And with that, let's get to today's guest, Adam Grow. Adam and I met this past summer at the 2022 National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy in Memphis, where he and I were both performing. It turns out that we met, in quotes, back when Adam was an undergrad student at Truman State, and I first appeared in Missouri playing around at various colleges once I had moved out here. And one of the places I played was a recital at Truman State. I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but my Mizzou colleague and frequent podcast guest, Megan Arns, was a student that same semester at Truman with Adam and does not have any recollection of this concert. That could be for a variety of reasons. Anyway, this recital does get brought up at some point in the interview. In any case... Adams built himself quite a career in a short amount of time. He's been director of percussion studies at Western Carolina for a number of years, continuing a program that was developed and established by his predecessor, Mario Gattano. He's been involved in a number of successful percussion programs throughout his career and has been involved in a lot of great experiences over the years, which he'll talk about during our interview. Additionally, I checked in with him at this point because members of his percussion studio were performing on the new music research portion of PASIC 2022. They were doing a performance of a work by Inti Vigas Vizueta involving drawing shapes and images on pieces of paper with various implements and creating sounds on a table with contact microphones. I was fortunate to be able to see this at PASIC and thought that they carried the piece off very well. You'll get to hear more about this in our conversation. One more item. After we first started, we switched Adam's audio output, so his audio will be greatly improved 
shortly after we start. So now, let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on October 27th, 2022, and it begins right now. Adam, tell me what you will be presenting at PASIC this year and when you're presenting. My students here in the Western Carolina University Percussion Ensemble are performing uh, a work by uh, Inti Figus Vizueta, um, and she's a composer um, based out of New York. And so we're doing a piece on Focus Day at the 11 o'clock concert on Thursday. Um, I can't remember the room number, but it's the Focus Day concert room there on the, on the you know, where it always is. And yeah, we're really we're really excited about this piece. It's a it's called Open Space. Uh, we commissioned it from Inti in 2019, um, and yeah, we've had a lot of fun doing it. And it's been um, really exciting for the students. Um, it's very different from what they're used to, uh, though. There's no uh, quote unquote instruments in the piece. Uh, all each person has 20 large sheets of paper. And then you have uh, five different writing implements. So we use a uh, pencil, uh, marker, like a Sharpie, and then usually like an even bigger, one of those like real big Sharpies. <laughs> um, and then and then they have a couple different, um, I, I don't know the technical term because I'm not a visual artist, but like the charcoal and like the different kind of uh, hardnesses or, or what, what is it? Hold on, I'm looking it up here. Contrast Inti says two contrasting charcoals. The the table is contact mic'd and they're they're drawing these shapes and it's kind of about these convergences of of gesture and sound and and how that how that all kind of plays together. You mentioned that the student this is a very unusual type of work for your students to work on. What are they more used to? I think like most, you know, undergraduate students, they're used to um, playing quote unquote instruments, you know, <laughs> with, with mallets and um, it's very black and white. Like it's, it's very, they're used to the same thing that, that most young students are, that it's like somebody hands them a piece of music and it looks like most of the other music they've always seen, you know, especially in like an ensemble setting, they may not be given much autonomy um, or freedom and they may you know they're kind of thinking about things in this one very particular way and so being able to kind of re yeah reimagine um first of all taking all of the sort of technique out of it you know i mean there are there are things we've talked about in terms of gesture and the way that they're drawing um and how that translates both visually and and sonically but um but yeah they they just kind of have really embraced the the opportunity to try something new and to explore a new perspective and a new means of being creative, which is really cool. Yeah, that's great. Because this piece has been either in process or been worked on for, it sounds like a few years. Does that mean that there's a totally different group of students that are playing it right now? So we're on, we're on sort of our second go around with the piece. So when we, when we had the piece in 2019, we premiered it on a concert and we, um, and we were in, <laughs> that was of course fall of 2019. And we all know what happened in spring of 2020. And our plan was, it was, this piece was one of four pieces that we had commissioned that fall through some funding on, on campus. 
And so we we had this plan of like, okay, in the fall, we're gonna we're gonna learn the pieces, we're gonna perform them, premiere them, and then in the spring we'll come back and we'll set up some recording sessions and and do that. And of course, we all know what happened. And so then we had to walk away from it for a while. And some of the students who played it the first time have graduated. And so I had a group of students um, last spring who were younger and I thought, hey, this might be a good fit for focus day. And so I asked the four of them, um, you know, would you all be interested in in kind of taking this on? And I, I there were two two pieces. We submitted two of the pieces we commissioned in that project um, for focus day. And I I asked them, you know, would you would you want to do this? And I told them, you know, that we I have no idea if we'll get picked. If we won't get picked, like it can be an extraordinarily competitive process, but if y'all want to try it. And so, um, they looked at the piece and they were like, yeah, we want to give it a shot. And so, uh, luckily I, I planned that the oldest ones were juniors, So they were coming back this fall. So I gave them first dibs. And so they're, uh, they're able to all come back and do it again. And so now this group worked on it in the spring and they're getting to revisit it now, which I think is, is cool for them to have that perspective. When you were describing what is part of the piece, it's kind of funny because it. I would imagine this is maybe the easiest traveled piece that you could do. Yeah. About the only tricky thing is like contact mics, you know? (laughs) So it's like, uh, but other than that, yeah. I mean, we need, we go to like wherever, you know, Walmart and get one of those big rolls of craft paper and then they just cut a whole bunch of sheets and we've got this plastic bag full of writing utensils that kind of, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it can fit inside of somebody's backpack, which is cool. Are there actually a lot of very specific things that are asked? Um, I mean, does it, would it be like um, either time frame, uh, uh, transitions, how, how, how um, strongly detailed is the score? Sure, sure. So basically what Inti says is to, is there are some simple geometric shapes that the students, that the performers draw. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, if you're drawing a triangle, you follow the same pattern, like, you know, one, two, three, and it's kind of up to each performer to set their own sort of speed and, um, and kind of, you know, I mean, they could one, two, and then other there, it's a quartet. So there's, uh, the other players may be drawing different shapes. I mean, there's some that's like, you know, kind of a circle that you get this kind of kind of swish sound, sort of like a brush kind of thing, you know, you get square, there's some that's star. So you get these sort of different points and all of those things are kind of overlapping and dovetailing on each other. And what Inti says to do is to draw your shape over and over and over and over until the paper, and it's sort of up to the performer's discretion until the paper either rips where you're drawing or until it becomes so heavily saturated that you're ready to move on to the next, um, to the next sheet. And then basically you pick your paper up, you crumple it and you drop it on the floor and you're on to the next page right there. So the piece, it's a little bit flexible on the timeline. I think our version PAS wants us to fit it into 15 minutes. So we have about a 15 minute block. That is one of the things, you know, the students had to kind of figure out is like, okay, how, how sort of aggressively do I need to draw to be able to get through a piece of paper in however much time and kind of keep us, keep us on the clock. So we are going to use a um, a timer most likely just so we don't cause any big logistical headaches for the, for the folks at the conference. It is flexible and, and they'll switch, you know, they all switch whenever they're done with a page and depending on the shape they're drawing, it might, they might get through that page faster or slower and um, which implement they're using, you know, the markers leave like kind of, 
if they're a nice fresh marker, they might get a lot of ink. So it really saturates quickly versus the pencil, which, you know, may take a lot more vigorous or lengthy kind of drawing. So, yeah. Are the implements specified? Yeah. So it's, it's, um, two contrasting pieces of charcoal, a thick permanent marker, a pencil and a felt pen. So we have five, five implements, um, and they're able to move between them freely. It's, there's, it's not structured in terms of, okay, we're all going to be on the pen. They can, they can, they're pretty much all switching implements for each page, um, kind of as they, as they progress through the piece. What have the students had to figure out in terms of performance etiquette to make this a worthwhile experience for an audience? Well, I'll t- it's interesting you had asked about, you know, if we've played it again. I think the first group took the piece seriously. I mean, they they were bought into it. They were interested in it. They thought it was interesting. We played it for a live audience, and I don't think the audience knew what to make of it. I think they almost thought that it was a joke, And you and you can hear in our live recording there were some spots where you can hear kind of some like murmuring in the background or some like chuckling when they would like crumble the paper and drop it. And, you know, um, and so we kind of talked about that when we did it with the second group, I said, okay, you know, here, here's what I, here's what our experience was the last time. And here's kind of how the audience responded. And here are some things to think about in terms of, you know, and we talked about, kind of some of the themes of of the piece in general and Inti's work as well and kind of that perspective and where where this work is coming from and um and that it's important that you know it it doesn't become a parody of itself that it's that it's really you know it's a serious piece of art you know that a, a composer and artist created and even though it might be not traditional, even though it might seem, you know, whatever to the, to the average, you know, person, um, you know, we need to be completely bought into kind of our mission here as the performers. So um, we talked about that up front and, and the students who are doing it, I mean, they're all in the, the first group as well. I mean, they're all, they're all pros. They know, you know, they're, they don't think it's a joke or, you know, take it lightly. So that's, that's great. And so we've, yeah, we've talked about, you know, kind of facial expressions and demeanor and like, you know, simple things. Well, maybe it's not so simple, but you know, when you crumble up the paper, you know, you don't crumble it and chuck it and make it like a joke, you know, you just crumble it, you drop it. It's all, you know, it's very like kind of matter of fact. So, so to speak on those first performance or performances, did you, was there like a note to the audience or a, uh, let me tell you what's going on or something. Like that? <laughs> Not really. I mean, I don't remember if I, I don't remember what, or if I said anything in, in the concert. Um, and I think we may have just sprung it on the audience, which, you know, we, I don't, I may have included program notes. I, I honestly don't remember. I think if we, if we, perform it you know if we were performing it again i would i would probably do something whether talking about it more before or after just to kind of put everybody in that in that headspace yeah the students have done a really nice job with it have you had contact with the composer since premiering it or uh in terms of uh was there feedback were there things that that changed this time around nothing that really changed this time around i mean we definitely i, I mean i'm friends with inti and you know see things on social media and interact like that. Um, we, I mean, I definitely let her know that, that we're doing the piece that, um, 
that, you know, we're going to be playing at the conference and everything. We haven't really talked about any any changes or edits or modifications. I think I shared the video from the first performance uh, way back when, you know, we had sort of like an archival video that wasn't anything we were going to distribute out to the world. I think I shared it as just sort of like, hey, here was a, you know, the concert. Yeah, I think Inti was, you know, positive reaction. And so we're, yeah, but nothing has changed in the piece really. And I think kind of the openness of it and and, and all of that, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I don't really like that harmonic change there. So let me tweak, I'm going to tweak that. Or oh, that's not like it. It's kind of just an open framework to work in. No decisions of independent roles versus uh, hand. No. <laughs> <or anything. laughs> no, nothing, nothing like that, thankfully. <laughs> gotcha. I mean, I, th- I think just the piece in general is really, it's a lot about ritual. And, and Inti talks about that specifically in the program. And I pulled it up just so I made sure I didn't misquote it. But it says the integration of ritual in contemporary music spaces has generally been a colonizing act. And so using this, I, I think it's an appropriate way to kind of, like we were talking about, flip some of those traditional expectations of a piece of music you know, kind of on their head and it's kind of throwing some of those, those rituals and expectations and things out, which is then, you know, I think one of Inti's goals is, you know, then making space for new ideas, new people, you know, and, and leaving that space in our art form and in, and in music in general. And so this is kind of an extension of that both in, on different levels, you know, kind of the the idea of of the expectations of what is going to happen in this piece, but also, you know, kind of these like we I, I talked to the students about, you know, as they're drawing these shapes, these are kind of like these, it's like a little mini ritual, you know, and so, and and then we can listen, you know, and kind of think about the or the different shapes being different perspectives or ideas and hearing how they interact and hearing how they complement each other. It was cool because when we recorded it last spring for our for our proposal, um, when I when I sent them like the recording after we had we had done it one day and a couple of days later I say hey here's like a first draft let me know what you all think and they were all like whoa this like the sound is so cool because they were getting the contact mics and we have some overhead mics that we were kind of combining and they could really hear like all of this interplay and everything and they were they were really excited about it and and about how the piece was was coming off so i think yeah i think that message is really important and just you know creating that those spaces and that welcoming environment and questioning those things that we just uh, kind of do out of habit because they're just the rituals that are associated and thinking about who might that be keeping out or um you know what kind of barriers are those rituals putting up which is really important so, Adam, tell me what your percussion activities and responsibilities are at this point. I'm the assistant professor of percussion at Western Carolina University. So I'm, I guess it's not my official title, but I'm, I guess I'm sort of the director of percussion studies. We do have Dr. Diana Loomer also teaches here adjunct and she's an amazing colleague. So, you know, I would never think that I'm like her boss or anything like sure, that, yeah. but yeah, but you know what I mean? So I guess ultimately the buck kind of stops with me. So that's my, that's my main uh, gig. And otherwise um, try to stay active performing in a lot of different senses. I mean, my, my passion is, um, is kind of performing new music, uh, working with composers, that kind of thing. Uh, whether that's, um, you know, 
for, for my students in the percussion ensemble or myself as a soloist or that kind of thing. I still play with orchestras, but there's a few that I kind of regularly play with both here. And before I came to Western, I, I lived in Iowa and I still play with the Des Moines Symphony from time to time when the schedule permits to kind of make that trek. Been playing some musical theater, um, writing some pieces. So just trying to kind of do a bunch of stuff that is interesting to me, I guess. Now tell me about uh, getting the job, where you were before then, and also remind me what year this happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got the job in 2017, um, and before that, I had spent four years in Lamoni, Iowa, at Graceland University, which is a small liberal arts school, um, just right kind of off I-35 and uh, right at the Missouri-Iowa state line, pretty much. We have the the welcome center for Iowa right there with, with Amish buggy parking right out front. So if you're going from Kansas city to Des Moines, you can pull off in Iowa or in Lamoni and, you know, stretch your legs and get some gas and get a drink. But yeah, I was there for four years. Uh, that was my first full-time job out of, uh, out of school. Um, I had finished my doctorate in 2013. I'd been teaching adjunct at a couple of schools down in Texas. Um, and then I got this tenure track position opened up at Graceland. I was the first full-time percussion teacher there. They'd, they'd had a couple of students as percussion majors and they just farmed those lessons out to adjuncts. But, um, I was brought in to kind of build a percussion program, start, they wanted to start a marching band. And so they, they had the idea to start a drum line first. And so that was part of my responsibilities, but like anybody who's teaching at a small school, I was teaching some theory and music history and that kind of stuff. So um, then in 2017, when I got this job, I'm uh, one of the things that was appealing about it was the focus on just percussion. I mean, I, I teach lessons and percussion ensemble. I do a studio class each week. And so it's, it's much more focused on, on the applied studio and percussion ensemble. Um, and all, all of the other stuff, we have a large enough program and faculty that I don't have to worry about that. There are experts in those areas to do those things. Were you replacing Mario Gitano? Yeah. Yeah. Mario was, Mario was leaving here. He had retired after 37 years, I think. He was my predecessor. He still lives just uh, up the hill, basically. Um, and so he comes down to concerts. And actually, last fall, we did a we did a percussion ensemble concert of all marimba music. And so we did we invited some high school kids to play on kind of a marimba orchestra couple pieces. We did um, is it the Musser arrangement of Carmen that the. And so, yeah, we did that. And so I had Mario, I invited him to come play. So he sat in with the group and played. So that was kind of fun. And uh, yeah, he still is around and I played with him. He played in Asheville for a couple seasons in the orchestra after um, I first got here. And so I, we played together there and we have a great relationship. So it's really nice. And you don't do anything with the marching band. I do not know that. So yeah, we have this uh, behemoth of a marching band and a uh, huge, I mean, they're every year they're usually pushing about a hundred percussionists involved in the band. Um, and we're at the point where we have two full drum lines Two this year is the first year they've ever done. And they have two front ensembles. Um, and so they're, they're doing that. And yeah, luckily I, my responsibilities with the marching band include showing up whenever I want, 
and saying, Hey everybody, great job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> can go to a football game or two, come to a couple band camp rehearsals, kind of pop in, see the students. Uh, most of my students, I would say 90% of my percussion majors are involved in the marching band in any given year. So, um, there's definitely lots of, lots of folks that are lots of crossover and sharing students, but we have a great marching band program and staff. So they're, they're in capable hands with Matt Henley. Um, they're actually playing, uh, they're the exhibition band at BOA Grand Nationals this year. So they're all, all the students are excited because they all get to be in Indianapolis during PASIC, um, as opposed to worrying about a home football game or something like that. They're like, well, actually the marching band's going to be right across the street. So they're, they're looking forward to that. Kind of relatedly is, is marching band for, uh, for your students, at all at some point a requirement or is it that literally is it because it's so self-sufficient they don't even need to do that no they the music ed majors have to do two semesters they do two semesters here one of the things that that um that i know they're really proud of in the marching band program is the student leadership program that they have because we don't have any grad students so they don't have tas um, we have a director of athletic bands and two assistant directors of athletic bands. One of those is Matt Henley, who kind of oversees all the percussion. Um, and so it's really those three and those three can't manage the logistics for 500 students. So they have this elaborate um, student leadership program. That, I mean, I, I, I don't have the number right in my head, but I want to say it's, you know, 70, 80 students that have leadership positions. Some of them are your traditional, you know, section leaders and that kind of thing, but they, um, they have students doing everything from sort of teching, you know, they'll have these students who go and march drum corps or whatever, and they, then they bring them back and then maybe as a senior, they're not a performing member, they're on the teaching staff. So they're out on the field, you know, teching feet and running sectional music rehearsals and that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, they even have students, you know, on the, the uniform crew, they have event coordinators, all this stuff. And, and I know one of the things that's great is the music ed majors who are involved in that. Um, they're getting the experience of, you know, what is it, what is it like to run a, a band uniform inventory? So when they get that first gig and they're at a small school and they don't have a booster organization and it's just them, they're, they're knowing, okay, well, how, how do I do this? <laughs> what does this entail? So they're getting, they're getting those experiences and, and working with the logistics side of things before they're getting paid to do it and more at stake. Because of the fact that you don't have, um, you know, a grad, so you don't like, you don't have any grad assistants. Correct. Yeah. We don't have any grad degrees in school music. Gotcha. So what, what is the typical, um, studio size that you've been working with? I shoot for about low twenties as you know, we don't have a specific number that it has to be exactly this. I'm usually looking for 20 to 24. Um, we, in the spring, we have three wind bands. And so I'm trying to kind of think about staffing those more than anything. Um, and, and then in the fall, we only, they run two wind bands, um, you know, concert bands because there are so many students involved in marching band. There's just not the demand for a third one. And so even, but even in the fall, when we have the numbers for three bands in the fall, because so many are involved in marching band, most of them are doing, are picking up a concert band as sort of an extra bonus thing. Um, they don't need their, you know, 
they're not, they don't need the large ensemble credit that semester. So usually when we have enough students for three bands in the fall, we can staff two. Um, and then in the spring, it, it all works out nicely. So I'm usually kind of working with those, with those numbers in mind. Um, and then luckily, like I said, I have Diana here who can, who helps, um, I can teach, I think, like 15 hours worth of lessons in the week. So um, she picks up whatever we go over on that. And we've, you know, fluctuated. I think when I got here, we had maybe 15 or 16 and that seemed a little light um, at one point because of COVID and some plans, you know, there was a lot of disruptions there. I think we were down to 17 or 18, but we're back up in the low twenties. And we, I have a few non-majors who play in percussion ensemble, so I think this year I, I ran the numbers earlier and I think this semester we have 31 students involved in percussion in the school of music some way or another. I want to know a little bit more about the geography because this is one of the things that it, I, so I went to grad school. I went to undergrad and grad school in North Carolina and we did a mm. few times. We traveled out to Western Carolina yeah. <laughs> from Greensboro and even from there, I couldn't believe how far away um, Cullowee is. Yeah. And so just to explain some of the remoteness of where the school is actually located. Yeah, I mean, we we are in the mountains. And, and when I say that, I mean, I truly mean we are. It's not like, you know, I sometimes people when you say, well, we're in the mountains, they think of like, like Denver, where it's like you're in Denver and you can see the mountains like out there on the horizon, but like you're not in the mountains because how could you put anything in the mountains? And so, um, you know, our mountains are a lot or significantly shorter here in the, in the Appalachian area. But um, but yeah, I mean, Cullowee is is a valley and our campus is surrounded on all sides and in some cases built into the sides of, of actual mountains. So it's like somebody, you know, I, I tell people like, if you, if you want to imagine it, it's like somebody scooped up the university campus and just, you know, took it and just plopped it down, like right in this little valley. Um, and so the, like the edges are coming up at the, uh, on the side. Yeah. I mean, truly, truly, as you get to some of the spots, I mean, the, the home stand for our football stadium is built like into the hillside so that it's, um, it kind of provides like a nice natural, you know, bowl shape on that side. So, um, yeah, I mean, and it's not uncommon for us to get the, you know, campus police text message that say, Oh, a black bear has wandered onto, you know, by these buildings, so please avoid the area, and you know um, that please kind of thing. Black bear, a sousaphone, like you know that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, we are we are in in the mountains, and um, from from our campus, you can be at the entrance to like the Great Smoky Mountain National Park in about 25, 30 minutes. So we're on the North Carolina, the, the park runs, you know, right on the Tennessee North Carolina state line, um, and so we're on the North Carolina side. Uh, we're 45 minutes west of Asheville, which is already in the mountains. And then you go 45 minutes further into the mountains. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. We're actually, um, we're in kind of like a, a cool location because even though we are sort of re remote, I mean, we are actually not that far from a, a lot of places. And so, I mean, I can be from my house to, if I'm playing, I played with the Asheville Symphony last week and it's a 45 minute drive from my house to the hall in downtown Asheville. So, um, you know, I can be 
from there door to door pretty quick. Um, it's an hour and a half to Greenville, South Carolina, which is a good sized town. It's two hours to Knoxville, Tennessee, but in two and a half hours, I can be at Charlotte. I can be in Atlanta. Um, you know, and then, yeah, you just go a little bit further and you're getting up towards, you know, yeah, Greensboro and all, and, and all that. So we're actually kind of tucked in this spot where you can, be a lot of places. Sometimes it's funny. We'll have guest artists come in and, you know, they're like, well, where should I fly into? So, well, you can fly into Asheville or you can fly into Charlotte or you can fly into Atlanta or you can fly into Knoxville, you know, or Greenville. It's like all these options, you know? And so, um, so yeah, we're kind of tucked in this little pocket that there's, there's no direct great route to get to us. You kind of always have to go over the river and through the woods, but, um, but we're, we're kind of centrally located. Yeah. Well, and also, I'm curious about who tends to go to this school um, because it's a state institution, mm-hmm. and but it's in this remote place. But it's like you said, it's not as remote, but it's still kind of remote, and you know all that stuff. So, like, who who do you and and are you all drawing from because you're so close to other states? Are you drawing from like a like a six seven state region for your students? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so there's a couple things that play into that. So, I mean. Technically, we are designated as like a regional, like our our institution's mission is as like a regional comprehensive university. So like UNCA, um, like a similar thing, like a similar thought like them. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, initially, like the the thought was we are here to provide, you know, an institution of higher learning that is primarily catering towards the residents of Western North Carolina. Um, And that is still a, a... foundational part of our of our mission um but what has happened is because we are in such close proximity to lots of places and also because things like this marching band have gotten this reputation nationally and throughout the the southeast for sure we are drawing a lot of students we have another program that's actually in place that's a huge help called the nc promise which is something that the state legislature came up with um i guess it had just been approved around the time that I was getting hired. So my first year, it wasn't in effect yet. It was coming online the second year, but basically they designated three schools originally. And now there's a fourth throughout the state of North Carolina and they provide reduced, um, the, the legislature basically buys down the tuition for the students. They subdivide, sub, subsidize, oh, sorry, uh, not subdivide, subsidize the cost. So uh, in-state students pay $500 a semester in tuition to come to Western. Um, out-of-state students also get a benefit. They pay $2,500 a semester. So we have plenty of out-of-state students who realize they can come to us cheaper than they can stay in-state. So we, yeah, we pull from... Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee. We'll get some from Alabama, but I mean, really it's those, it's kind of that core group right in there. And I think a lot of people do realize, I mean, you know, you have these, these students that come out of these big band programs in like Cobb County, Georgia, you know, the North Atlanta and they're, and then they see our marching band doing something that is exciting to them. And they realize like, Oh, well, that's only like two, two and a half hours away from where I live. That's actually not that far. Um, and so we get, we do get a lot of interest from students, you know, who are throughout the region, as opposed to just the, the state lines kind of where we are in North Carolina, where it tails off, like the lines don't really matter. I mean, you know, you drive for a few minutes, you're like, Oh, am I in Georgia now? Oh, I guess we did cross, you know, so it's so close that, um, that it's, 
yeah, it's, I think students are thinking about the distance as opposed to which state that they're in, especially because it's not costing them that much more to come here. Yeah. All right. Well, Adam, let's back up. Where'd you grow up? <laughs> I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, yeah, that's where I'm from. And are you, and, now, and wait, are we talking, are you talking St. Louis or are you talking in quotes, St. Louis? Yeah. St. Louis County. So I'm, so I, yeah. So my, I mean, my mom is, is from, you know, St. Louis city, like grew up in the city and we, and so I have a lot of family that lived, especially growing up, we'd go visit family that was down in like South city. Um, I grew up out in, in West County in like the Wildwood kind of Chesterfield Ellisville area. Did you have any family members in the arts? Um, I, so my, my paternal grandfather was a, um, he was a, music teacher in rural Northeast Missouri and Southern Iowa. And then eventually um, he and my grandma moved to Quincy, Illinois. So just right over the, right across the river from, from Missouri. Um, And so there he, um, he owned a piano shop. He uh, taught music lessons and all kinds of stuff. Unfortunately, he passed away before I was born. So on my mom's side, there's nobody musical. On my on my dad's side, um, my grandfather was the only professional musician. Um, but because because of his influence, there's definitely a love of music on that side of the family. Um, you know, my my dad and my aunts and uncles, they, you know sing in the church choir or they play instruments, they play piano, you know, um, that kind of stuff. And so, um, there was an influence there and appreciation for, now there hadn't been any drummers. So, you know, when I first said, I think I might want to learn drums, they were like, well, how does that work? You know, is that music? <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, so there was, there was definitely more of the, the artistic musical side on that side. Awesome. So where did the percussion bug first hit you? I came to percussion last of all the instruments that I've played. So in elementary school, you know, our school had like in fourth grade, we all played violin, like in kind of a Suzuki thing. Um, And then fifth grade, I chose to continue playing, but I wanted to switch to cello. Um, so I had to lug that thing on the school bus, you know, which was a disaster. Um, and then, and then I got to middle school and, when I did the, you know, the instrument testing, they wanted to put me on trumpet. And for some reason I wanted to play saxophone. So, um, I don't know if I just like all the buttons and, you know, like all kind of the contraption element of it. But, um, so I said, well, they said, well, that was like your second choice. And I said, well, if I can, you know, do that, I'd really like to. And they said, okay. So I started playing alto saxophone, um, somewhere in middle school, I switched to playing tenor saxophone. You know, I think we all started on alto and then they were like, Oh, do you, if you want to switch, you can. And so I switched to tenor and I think it was like seventh grade that I started kind of, I started getting more exposed to like, to drum set and, you know, and I'd played in like the middle school jazz band and saw, then some had friends who were playing drums and I was like, that seems kind of cool. And, um, so I, in eighth grade, I got, I finally convinced, convinced my dad to, uh, to let me get a drum set. And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You have to, you've got to take lessons first, you know, so I, I wanted a drum set for Christmas. So he was like, you're going to take lessons first for like six months. 
And if after six months, this still feels like something you want to do, you know, then we'll, then we can talk about a drum set. And so I said, okay. So I started taking lessons, just doing snare drum and drum set, you know, playing rock drum set stuff. And, um, so then, and I kept playing saxophone simultaneously. So I was kind of playing saxophone at school and drums at home. And then when I got, went to high school, um, I joined the drum line and did that. And then I still, I, so all the way through high school, I was basically doing like four music classes a day uh, or music activities. So I would, I played saxophone in like concert band and in jazz band. And then I played, we had a percussion class. So I did that and we did some percussion ensemble and technique stuff. And then I played in the drum line. So I had kind of two of each. And then eventually when I went to to college, they were like, you know, you're going to have to pick, like you're going to have, you got to pick one. And I, by that point, there was no, there was no competition. Like it was going to be percussion for sure. So. Do you find now that the, the saxophone training and the violin training is beneficial to you as a percussionist or did it just kind of like, ah, I kind of figured all that stuff out eventually elsewhere. I don't know that I ever connected those dots because I don't really, I don't think I really credit myself as being much of a saxophone player or definitely not a string player. You know, I think that was like, that was kind of like something that I did because I liked music and my family liked music. And so I, I played those instruments and, but I definitely refer, you know, refer to things with my students a lot as, you know, if we played a wind instrument or if we sang, or if we did this, you know, and our instrument didn't just go thud and die, you know, how would that change the way that we play? And so I, I don't know that I'm referring back to my own experience as like, oh, I was this great saxophonist who played really lyrically and here's all these things I did. But I think it was, I think it's, I definitely have an appreciation for it. And I definitely think those are important teaching tools to get the students thinking about, you know, oh, how would that work? Or how would that sound? You, you didn't sit there and, and put on giant steps and be like, listen to me, play these changes. Yeah, no. <laughs> no. no, definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> so when you first start playing drum set, what music are you most interested in playing? Punk rock. Oh yeah. Like, like or like classic rock, punk rock. I like, I, yeah. I mean, I basically started playing drum set as a means to trying to like get playing in like garage bands, mm-hmm. you know? And so I had, I had some friends who were, I had a lot of friends who played guitar. Um, and, and so I had some friends who was like, I would go to their house and we would play, you know, more like classic rock or we'd play some like, like harder rock. And then I'd go to, you know, these other friends and they were really into punk. And so we'd go and we'd play, you know, like we'd all just learn punk songs. And so, but like what artists in those? Oh, uh, geez. In the classic rock bands. I mean, we were playing like ZZ Top and Leonard Skinner and uh, Bob Seger. And, um, you know, we would play like some Metallica stuff or. I don't remember. Yeah, actually, one time I managed to convince my mom to take me to a Leonard Skinner and ZZ Top concert when I was in like eighth grade, you know, oh, nice. downtown St. Louis in like an arena. And it was like, you know, she's like, why do you want to go to this? And I was like, oh, I like, I love these bands, you know? <laughs> so it was great. I mean, punk bands, I mean, that was around like the, you know, 
late nineties. So I was, you know, in early two thousand. So that was what like, kind of like all like the pop punk, like blink One Eighty Two and newfound glory and uh, other bands that I liked like, uh, green day. Yeah. Green day alkaline trio and like all these kind of like, you know, all those kinds of bands. And so we'd cover some of that and we did other, other stuff sort of, I don't know, more like quote unquote alternative stuff. I don't know that it was classified as alternative then, but you know, we'd play like, nirvana or offspring they're i guess more on the punk side all kinds of stuff we play weezer songs and that kind of stuff you know so it's just like kind of whatever and um like i said luckily i had these different friends who kind of like were in different lanes of like and so i would so i'd you know go to one person's house we'd play this like everybody needed a drummer you know so it was like okay well i'll go to your house this weekend and next week in your house and learn some different songs so it was fun very cool. Uh, what was the marching experience like in high school for you? It started off as fairly, um, was it intense or not, not or yes, not super intense, but it was good. You know, it was, it was, we kind of found, I think the teachers that we had found a good way to kind of walk the line between like, like, so I, I went to Lafayette high school in in St. Louis and, um, you know, the band was always like good. It, you know, it wasn't like the goal was not to like do BOA. We weren't like doing at the, you know, we weren't the biggest band. We weren't the most contemporary progressive, whatever. We didn't have a thousand props and all that. Yeah, but it was always like a good band that sounded good. They played well, you know, they had like good fundamental instruction. Um, and so that was kind of the case for the percussion section, you know, that we were, we were, solid you know some years if you got the right combination of students we'd win a few trophies and have a really good section and the next year you know we'd be middle of the pack you know and we it was never a it was never bad you know but we were trying to be good without going over the top I guess and then my junior year we got a new a new director who came in who had more of had more of sort of drum corps experience and was looking to kind of push in that direction and so um, he brought in a couple of um friends of his that were in the area who were, you know, also had some drum corps experience, that kind of thing more and winter um, sort of WGI experience. And so they really ramped up the percussion experience. So, yeah, we had a competitive winter group those years that like we went to Dayton. And I think, um, I think my senior year, we were like a semifinalist in the A class or whatever. So we had, you know, we, had, we got out of, out of the prelims or whatever and advanced on. And in the fall, things got more serious and more kind of focused. And so, yeah, that was a good, a good experience. And definitely, um, you know, I kind of referred to that as like sort of my gateway drug for percussion. You know, that was the thing that really, that really gripped me at that point and kind of being pushed. Like it was always something that I enjoyed and was fun. But then once, once the level kind of picked up and we started doing, you know, like going to these winter shows and that I was like, Oh, people are doing this and they're doing that. And that's cool. And, um, that really kind of fueled the fire. Were you doing anything else, um, outside of music to fill out your time where you're in sports or student government or church related stuff? I played lacrosse for my first two years of high school. I had started in middle school. Uh, I kind of played like, I, I played just about every sport that I could when I was a kid. Um, and music was always sort of like, like I said, like I would play the violin at school or something, but I was also playing like soccer or baseball or basketball, or, you know, I played ice hockey for a couple of years and like this kind of, and then somehow I found lacrosse 
that was fun and I liked playing it. And so I played for my first two years of high school in the spring. And then, um, the third year, my junior year is when the new instructors had come and we had actually had a winter drum line my first two years that I did, but it was much less intensive. It was like, eh, we'll go play a couple regional shows, you know, and, and that kind of thing. But it wasn't anywhere at the level of being like a super high competitive thing. And so, um, and so then my junior year, it, we kind of, the schedules were like, okay, you're going to have to choose one. And so I, I ended up choosing to do percussion. And Have you thrown a ball recently or no? A lacrosse ball? Yeah. Uh, I don't know why. I still have, I think, I think my lacrosse sticks are still like in the basement in St. Louis. You know, I think we've come across them at one point we were looking for some stuff. I think I was like, my son recently got old enough a year or two ago to get into Legos and I had saved all my Legos in this big plastic tub. And so I was like in my dad's basement looking through stuff and I was like, well, where is this tub? And I, you know, he was with me and he's like, what's this? And the, you know, those lacrosse balls are just like solid rubber. So they yeah. bounce like crazy. And you know, we're in this unfinished yeah. Yeah. We're in this unfinished basement and my son, you know, it was like, well, this is cool. Boom. You know, and it's like just going everywhere. So I don't, but I, I haven't gotten the sticks out and, you know, played catch with anyone anytime recently. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's such a interesting skill set to like, because I've, I've nephews who really got into it. And so yeah. like, I think they were a few times were trying to get me and I was like, you know, getting used to like the, <laughs> yeah. the rotating thing, which is like, yeah. you know, it's actually not that different from progression, but, right. but it's not like to try to just keep it in so it doesn't fall out and stuff like that yeah. and then throw it like in any sort of direction that gets yeah. like close to them. And yeah, it was, it was <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun. I mean, I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun playing it and uh, it was kind Did of like hitting people. Yeah. I mean, that was fun. You know, yeah. like I, it was, it's fun. It's, it's fun to play you know, a sport where you're actually allowed to like swing a stick at somebody and, you know, like as long as you do it within certain rules, it's, it's okay. You know? Yeah. So it was fun. I liked, I liked that it was sort of like a combination of a lot of sports and like skills that I liked from different sports. You know, it's like, the it's kind of like the running and the activeness of like soccer where you're not just like, you know, like you're not standing like you are in baseball as much or like basketball, the running, you know, and, um, but it's got like, you kind of have like some, like you said, like the stick is kind of like hockey, you know, like you have something to like an apparatus to be figuring out how to like use. And yeah, there's like enough physical contact that was like a fun outlet, you know, but um, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun to play. So where do you go to undergrad? I did my undergrad at Truman State University up in, up in Kirksville, Missouri. So just a few hours from home. Well, I, you know, like most high school kids, I would imagine, uh, both of my high school band directors were Truman alums. And oh, so, okay. so I, you know, I, I was asking them where, you know, I think I, I was starting to think I, uh, you know, music seemed interesting to me and seemed like, and I, I, at that point, of course, you know, I'm thinking again, like what I think a lot of high school students are thinking, which is like, I'm going to go. And I like, I love this. I love high school band. I love marching band. I'm going to go, I'm going to get my music ed degree. I'm going to come back and like be a band director. You know, I'm going to have the greatest drum line in the history of the world or whatever. Um, and, and so I asked them, you know, where, where should I be looking? And, um, and they both were like, well, you know, Truman has a great, has a great percussion program. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll check it out. And so, I looked at a few other schools, but, um, to be honest, I mean, I, I went up and visited Truman over the summer and they had just, they were just getting ready to open the new building, which is now like 
20 years old, which is crazy. But, you know, like at that point, it was like everything, they hadn't even finished construction yet. It was like in the summer before my senior year of high school and they were just about ready to open it. And so we got a tour and I was like, wow, this is really great. We really liked the people that we had met and obviously having the personal kind of recommendation connection, um, you know, any other school felt like, eh, I don't know, like this one just kind of felt right. And then I, I think I planned to apply to a few other places, but I did like an early application to Truman. And when I got my acceptance that fall, I was like, well, I'm done. Yeah, no, that's, I'm done. that's it. I'm good. Um, and so that kind of took the pressure off a lot of that. And I was like, well, I'm going to go here and it's settled and I'll just, you know, that's what I'm going to do. What was, uh, what was studying under Mike Bump like? No exaggeration, like life-changing, one of the best things that has ever happened to me. Um, I think what I, I mean, you know, I had this, my own perspective. I knew what I knew coming out of high school. Um, and, you know, I got there and I think he had a really good way of kind of dangling things in front of people and like kind of showing you like a little bit of like, well, that's great that you like that. You know, I really like that too. Have you ever heard of this? And you're like, no, what is, you know, tell me more or like, or um, he's just so good at like very subtly, like introducing these things or kind of like putting this thing in front of you. And you're like, oh, I, I didn't know people do that, you know, or I didn't know that was a thing. And so, and he's just, I mean, the kindest, most supportive person that you could ever hope to meet. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say him more than anyone is the person, if I'm trying to emulate anyone with my teaching or with, you know, the, the, that it's him for sure. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I came in and I, you know, I was music ed, I loved, you know, kind of like marching percussion and I wanted to be in the drum line at Truman and all this. And I did those things, but then he slowly over the years kind of introduced me to enough things that got me, got me the bug on this other stuff. Yeah. I mean, then by my junior year, my junior year, I was supposed to start doing my observation hours for education. And so I got into a few schools and I was, I was just really getting the bug on like on kind of performing and, and more contemporary percussion and keyboard stuff and this and that. And I went to a couple of schools to visit and, and, you know, was talking to the band director and was like, you know, so how, how much do you get to play your instrument? And they're like, Oh, never, you know, like that, that thing's like in a closet somewhere, you know, like never. Um, and, and I was like, Oh, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like what I want to do. And, um, you know, and they were like, yeah, like most of my time I'm just, you know, I'm talking to parents or I'm coordinating this thing, or I'm dealing with like reserving a bus for our marching band trip or whatever. And I was like that, what, like that, that's not at all what I want to do. And so, um, I realized that, you know, really what I wanted to do was what Dr. Bump was doing, <laughs> you know, and so that like he's teaching and I love teaching. Um, and I'd been teaching in the summers, some high school groups and stuff like that as a, as a college student. And so I was like, well, I love teaching, but I also like his schedule seems pretty cool. He gets to come and go as he pleases and he gets to play music and play with other people and do, you know, all these exciting things. And that, that seems good. So I remember I was like, okay, if I want to do like, what do I have to do? You know? And he's like, Oh, well, you know, graduate school. So 
it was too late to switch. Um, I was kind of too far down the music ed path, but the way Truman does it is they, they have that fifth year master's in education thing. So you get like a BA in music and then you start, you know, you do one more year and you get your master's in ed and your teaching certification. So I just kind of bailed on all the ed stuff and said, I'm going to do, I'll just finish with the BA and, and do that. Um, it was still kind of late. And so I wasn't quite ready for grad school auditions. So I actually did a year at Truman as a master student in conducting. Um, I applied for, a for, a, a, an assistantship and, you know, to be part of the conducting program. And we had enough TAs that, that, uh, Dr. Bum said, okay, well, you know, for like marching band, you're going to just run the drum line. You're going to, you know, you'll do that. You'll write for the drum line. You'll help coach like a second percussion ensemble. You'll teach a few private lessons. And I had to do, I can, I helped conduct a concert band, um, which was, a, you know, not my strong suit, but, <laughs> but uh, I'm as much of a conductor for concert band as I am a saxophone player. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> or a professional uh, lacrosse player. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but I did it and it was a good experience. And um, so I did that for a year. And in that year, I, I got ready to audition for master's in performance programs. So can you compare and contrast the, the college marching experience versus the high school? So I, I think the college band was, you know, obviously we weren't competing or anything. And we were doing shows that were, um, we weren't a band that did a different show every week. We were more of sort of a, core style band but we were but it was not contemporary drum corps you know it wasn't like whatever thing the cavaliers were doing that year we just were copying their drill like it was it was definitely still um you know still college band um and nothing like what's happening here at western (laughs) you know um but you know one of the things that i love about dr bump that he really did with the with the percussion section is is he gave us a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom to really to be as good as we wanted to be you know i think he had like and i haven't ever talked to him about this so i don't know this is just my interpretation but but what I assumed is there was always sort of a minimum standard, you know, like we have to be able to do A, B, and C. Great. That's like to make the marching band work, we have to do those things. But it was like, but if y'all want to do D, E, and F, like I'm not going to stop you. My freshman year, the like the symbol line from the drum line did a, like the PASIC individual and ensemble marching competition and they put together a thing like they wrote a piece themselves a symbol ensemble and went and did it and then my sophomore year we did like a snare drum thing um with the with the drumline folks and i know in the past they had done some kind of winter drumline stuff and they'd had some some people there um with a lot of drum corps experience and that kind of thing and so they they were um, there were these, it would kind of go in these like waves that, you know, you'd get a few people who were real motivated and they'd kind of be like, all right, let's, let's do this. And so my first couple of years there, there were a number of upperclassmen that were kind of in those positions. And then my junior year actually, so I, I actually started writing for the drumline as a junior. I, you know, I had already been doing it by the time I became a grad student. Um, and he, I mean, he, Dr. Bump, I remember he sent me an email that was just like, Hey, I know you're interested in this. Would you want to do this? And I was like, well, sure. How much do you want me to write? And he was like, how much do you want to write? 
I'll write all of it if you'll let me, you know? And I think he's, it started off, I think he wrote like the drum feature and I wrote the other three movements in the show or whatever. Um, but he let me write all the exercises and he, you know, and, and it really became like a, a very student led thing. I mean, he would be there to, to, you know, run certain rehearsals, but I mean, there were also lots of times that it was just us. And again, like if, how good do you want to be, you know, do we want to get together and drum? And if so, let's do it. And so luckily we had a good group of, of folks in it who everybody was motivated. And then we, um, we had some good news, younger students coming in. And um, so they kind of jumped on board and we had a good little, a good little run for a few years where we were, I mean, you know, we weren't the best drum line in the world, but we were playing some stuff, you know, and we had, uh, you know, Kent Lineberry. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. So Kent had taught drumline at Truman like a couple of years before I was a freshman. And so we had met each other and his brother, Matt had was, was teaching at the first two years I was there. Um, and then, and then Kent came back like my, maybe my senior year. And he, you know, he did like a clinic for us one night and was just in town. And, and he was like, I can't believe you all are playing. So like the drumline, when I was teaching it, like we never could have played some of this stuff. And we were just kind of like, I, I don't know, you know, we just like, we just wrote it and you know, I wrote it and they learned it. And so here we are. So, you know, um, so that was really cool that we had the the freedom to really, to really kind of push that forward as much as we wanted to. It's funny. I remember talking with you the summer at NCPP. Well, it's like you you just kind of were like, oh, by the way, when you uh, when I was a student at at Truman, you played a concert there, yeah. and and it's funny because I know I told you that because you were at school with Megan Arns, uh huh, right? And and Megan and her office is literally like right there. Um, <laughs> and, and it's funny because I said, you know. She was there too, I think, and she has no recollection of this concert. And I'm glad somebody can verify that yeah. I gave this concert. You did. You did. It was just like really funny that like, like she's literally like, I swear I was at the school. I'm like, okay, but yeah, she was <laughs> definitely that impression on you. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I would assume she was at that concert, but I, you never, you know, I don't know if it was, maybe she was at like a drum corps camp or something or who knows, but Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I remember it. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember like the whole program or anything, but I, I remember, I remember you coming and playing. So <laughs> I remember ta- it's possible. I do re- what I remember. Well, I said, I think I told you this, like the two things I, I really remember is one is that there was a very, it's like, you were all very enthusiastic, but I couldn't see any of you. Cause you were, there was like this pocket of that, <laughs> of wherever I was playing that like, yeah. you were all sitting. So <laughs> But it was great. And then the other thing is that you were all, I talked to like, I want to say like 15 of you in a circle outside and for a while, like it was really cool. So it's possible you were part of that circle. I, I've probably, yeah. 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 So anyway, yeah, I know, I know for a long, uh, I don't know where they sit now, but there, it became tradition that a lot of students would sit in the balcony because yes. there was a small balcony in the hall. And so you'd have like these senior recitals, you know, you'd get these families, like you'd see them show up and they'd be like the only, they'd feel like they were the only people in the lower level of them. And like, you know, there'd be like seven people, but you don't realize there's like 60 people sitting in the balcony, you know, way up in the top. And it's, you know, so yeah, it's this weird, like you're on stage and everybody's like way out there. It's kind yeah, of yeah. fun. Yeah. It was, it was hilarious. Do you do a master's of like a, a percussion master's or is your master's the kind of the extension that you were doing? No. So I, so I, what I did. So I, (laughs) I decided, okay, so I'm a senior in college and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not 
prepared for these grad school auditions. I mean, literally, like I, I think I had missed the deadlines by the time I was having these realizations. I was like, grad school would be cool. And it's like December 1st application deadline. Shoot. You know, like not only have I missed it, but I have nothing prepared for the audition process. So, um, so it's like, okay, well, I'm not ready what am I going to do? And so I, my plan had always been, so at Truman, you could do that fifth year master's in education, but some students would also pair it with a second master's in conducting. So they'd stay two years, they'd have their undergrad BA, they'd have a master's in ed and a master's in conducting. So my plan when I was music ed was always, well, I think I might want to do one of those TA spots. So I asked around and I said, can I still apply for this if I'm not going to do the, the master's in ed? And they were like, well, sure, there's no reason you can't. So I applied for that and got it we got into the into the program um and then my thought was okay i've bought myself basically two years maximum of practice time you know um and so i thought the place that i really wanted to go um was florida state and so i thought okay i don't i don't necessarily want to do like the whole grad school audition tour i really want to go there so i so I thought, okay, my first year, I'm just going to prep for an audition to Florida State. And if that doesn't work out, then the second year, I'll audition at four or five or however many places and I'll, you know, figure something out. So I was lucky at, to have a spot at Florida State and get in there. So I didn't finish the master's in conducting. I had the one year of that and I kind of left that behind and then just went to a typical MM in percussion performance at FSU have a hard time imagining a starker difference uh, between bump <laughs> and parks. Uh, is that, can I, can you verify that? I, it can verify. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and I, it's interesting on when I think, cause I've been asked this question before. Well, you didn't really ask it, but I've been asked the question before, like, you know, talk about like your three teachers, like your three main teachers, Michael bump, John parks and Tom Burrett, yeah. <clears throat> kind of how they, you know, what did you take away from them? And I, they're all very different, extremely. And yes, there is a, it's an extremely stark difference between the way the program runs with Dr. Bump versus Dr. Parks. Um, But I think at that point, what I was, I was so hungry for somebody to just kick my butt. Yeah. You know, like I was just like, I just wanted the information so bad. I wanted to be in a place that was just, sorry, <laughs> that was just, you know, like just going a hundred miles an hour the whole time. <clears throat> and, you know, I'd gone down and I had, I'd taken a lesson with parks and it was like a three hour lesson. I mean, it was one of these that he's like, you know, I'll teach you as long as you got stuff to play. And I was like, okay. So I prepped like a whole bunch of marimba solos and excerpts and all this. And I mean, and it was just like, boom, boom. I mean, we didn't stop for a minute and I was just taking it all in. And I was like, I'm sold, you know, like I want to be, I want to be in this place. I've got this, this drive and I want to be somewhere that, you know, not only is not going to be holding me back, but in fact, it's going to be behind me, like shoving me, like go even faster, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, the, it's very different and, um, 
you know, I was also interested with Dr. Bump. I did a lot of, um, I mean, obviously he's a fantastic timpanist and I'd done a lot of timpani with him. I did the Duff masterclass, um, while I was a student there. So I had that plus kind of his insight on timpani. So I'd, I'd done a lot of timpani. Um, I'd done a lot of sort of chamber percussion ensemble, a lot of newer percussion ensemble stuff, more, I don't know, for lack of a better term, sort of experimental. And so the idea of going somewhere and doing like a very orchestral focused, you know, a lot of snare drum, a lot of orchestral audition stuff, still being great marimba, great percussion ensemble. Um, that was all like, okay, yeah, the, um, sign me up. Um, and actually then it was, part of the draw to UT Austin later on was that, well, I haven't really been with somebody who's like a marimba, you know, like that is their thing. And that was Tom's thing. So that was, um, one of the factors that, that led me to Austin, but yes, I can confirm John Parks is wonderful, but is nothing like Michael Bump. (laughs) (laughs) Was there a, a moment, um, in the ensemble experience at FSU where you got like the full parks, um, maybe like they, they, the group needed a little bit of a pep talk. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I think you're, I think when you're a student at FSU, you're constantly getting the full parks effect, you know, like there's, <clears throat> I don't know that there's a partial parks effect. Like it's, <laughs> I mean, you know, everything is, is he runs it by the book. So it's like if rehearsal starts at noon, he's got his, you know, whatever powered, like solar, you know, NASA powered clock behind the, you know, and I mean, he's sta- he's either standing on chairs or on the desk to conduct, you know? So it's like, and you're all, you know, you're all in there and you show up an hour early to set up and you're just like in there with everybody, just like rep and set. So you're like rehearsing an hour before the rehearsal starts because you know, as soon as he walks in and that's 11, 59 and 57, 58, 59, boom, there's the downbeat and we're playing the piece down even the first rehearsal. And yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's everything is out there. So it's, it's great. I mean, and it's, and it's, it works. You can't argue (laughs) with the results. I mean, I, and yeah, I mean, there are, didn't happen too often, but I mean, I had friends get thrown out of rehearsals, you know, just like, and there was, there was no, um, sort of malice to it. That was what was interesting is it was very like, you know, Hey, what's going on over there. Okay. Let's do it again. You still don't have it. Okay. Let's do it again. Okay. You're not ready for this. You need to go, you know, go downstairs to a practice room and work it out. There's no fanfare. It wasn't like you suck and I hate you. It was just like, you're not ready to be here this is slowing us down. Go figure it out. Uh, so, and what's ironic is some of those people are now in some of like the premier military bands and have orchestral jobs, you know, and it's like they were undergrad students and got, you know, I watched them get thrown out of a rehearsal. Which is like, so I, yeah, I, um, I never got thrown out of one, which was, which is, uh, you know, I guess a ribbon for me or something. But, um, yeah, just don't hurt yourself patting yourself on the back. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I had this idea of what I wanted, the experience that I wanted, and I got my money's worth. You know, I got by the end of the second year, I was like, whew, like, okay. Like I've, you know, I was starting to run out of steam and just like, I've been pushing for two years and been getting pushed. And it was like, okay, maybe, 
maybe I'm ready for a slightly slower pace. And that was Austin. So how involved was parks in the recording side at that point? Yeah, we were in the early days of the, I mean, he had, I think it was the year before that he had really started kind of doing a lot of recording, maybe a year or two before I got there. When I was there, we recorded the first, the volume one of the percussion ensemble series. And I, I can't remember what they're on now, four or five. You know, when I was there, he had just recently had his office wired as the control room for the recording, you know, in the percussion studio. And I was early in the process, but he it was still definitely happening, you know, and he was recording everything and recording our pre-screening tapes for grad school audition and recording the ensemble. And, you know, I mean, he, he, that albums, he does it all, you know, I mean, he involves students, but, but he's, you know, recording, engineering, producing, uh, the only thing he doesn't do is the album art, you know, and it's like, uh, otherwise it's, it's him. And so, um, that was really cool to be around and definitely listening to the recordings and using them as a teaching tool was really, was really great. When you get to Tom Burrett, and I'll ask this now because you did, you kind of pre-asked it. (laughs) What did you feel like was the things that you were, you needed from the UT Austin, aside from, you know, like you said, the, the, the emphasis on it, on it being a marimbist, you know, as kind of like the main instrument. Mm -hmm. What else do you feel like was, was the next step for you in your development? Yeah, I think, I think the things that I was looking for definitely from like a personal standpoint, I, I, you know, looking at my big percussion food groups, you know, I'd had timpani, I'd had snare drum, I'd had orchestra stuff. I, I wanted, I wanted some, I wanted a few years of like serious keyboard heavy pedagogy and, and, you know, what does that look like to be around? Not that these other, you know, not that Dr. Bumper, Dr. Parks don't can't play keyboards, you know, right. but just, I, I wanted to know, what it looked like, you know, with somebody like Tom, I knew that I didn't want to sacrifice anything in terms of quality of the overall music school. Um, and being at a place like FSU, there's only a handful of places that you can go and, you know, and, and, and maintain that. But I knew that I, you know, I had a great time playing in the wind bands and the orchestras and that kind of stuff. Um, now one thing that FSU didn't do as much of, um, at least not um, in a regularly structured way was as much of the contemporary music, whereas UT had their new music ensemble um, and gave it equal footing with the wind ensemble and the the top orchestra. So, you know, I, um, I wanted to be somewhere that would do, that would do that. I did want to be in, I like the idea of being in Austin in this bigger city, this kind of hub for arts and culture and live music and that kind of thing. Um, And, but I knew, but I also knew that, okay, you know, I got my butt kicked for a couple of years. Uh, We were, you know, just going a million miles an hour and I would like to be, you know, maybe in a place that still has the high expectations, but is a little bit, you know, we're not going a hundred miles an hour, we're going 90 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and so that was everything kind of converged on, on UT. Aside from the, you know, the fact that you wanted more of the the keyboard side, was there anything technique wise that uh, Burrett worked with you that was that was new or more heavily emphasized? I think the thing that I really took from Tom was 
um, was kind of like the artistry of what we do, like what it, what it means to be an artist. Um, again, not that the other, my other teachers aren't artists, you know, they certainly are by, and they're incredible. Um, but I think it's more, it was, that's more a comment on me and what I was ready for, you know? Um, and, you know, with Dr. Bump, it was more sort of, I needed to be exposed to things I need to explore. I needed a kind of a safe, low pressure place to really kind of do these things and kind of mess around and have lots of varied experiences with Dr. Parks. I I wanted the, like, I wanted somebody to just be like pushing me on like my technique and my execution and like getting the consistency in my playing. And then when I got to Tom, it was like, okay, I, I want somebody like, I feel good about kind of how my hands work and how I'm playing. I need somebody who can kind of zoom back out and say, okay, let's, let's take a broader perspective or let's think about things. I mean, we talked a, a ton about like articulation and about, um, you know, kind of higher level or, or less sort of black and white musical concepts, more about interpretation, that kind of stuff with, you know, um, that I don't think my head would maybe be able to wrap around earlier. Um, and so it was like the perfect thing at the perfect time for me that it really connected. And, you know, I was able to start implementing that stuff into, into all the, all the rep that I was learning and everything. Is there anything that's like a specific either item directive that from those, from thinking about things more artistically that, like either remains with you or you definitely use when you work with these things with your own students. Anytime I'm talking about articulation, I feel like it's like Tom Burrett just like coming out of my mouth, you know, like it's like, um, and I, you know, I often credit him, uh, to my students, but you know, like he talks about like his six M's, like the make a musical motion that matches the musical moment, that whole thing, which is like, you know, a fa kind of fancy way of saying like you sound, how you look or how you move. And so, you know, it's, it's that kind of stuff. And a lot of this, like singing while, you know, and like thinking about note length and about emphasis and different syllables and the way you articulate and um, kind of like we were talking earlier about, about, you know, non-percussionist musicians that it's like, you know, a brass player has to decide like what kind of a tongue sound are they, is it like a D tongue or a T tongue, you know, and like, those are different and that's, that changes the sound. And, and, you know, so making the students think about things um and and sometimes sing things and and not just sing it like you know blah 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 but like really like with some something behind it you know um and like okay now listen to that how do we make that happen here and that's all i think coming from tom you know all right now compare and contrast austin versus tallahassee versus the metropolis that is Kirksville. Kirksville. Yeah. I mean, I feel like all of these things were very serendipitous. Like I, I'm not that smart. And somehow I like wound up in the perfect place at the perfect time. Every time, you know, like I think about myself, you know, going to Kirksville and like, I was an idiot, you know, I was an 18 year old kid. I didn't know anything about anything. And here I am like, I felt like I just like stumbled into like the best teacher I could have ever imagined. Austin was the perfect thing at that perfect time. And again, because it, 
it gave me what I was looking for from sort of a educational perspective and working with Tom, but it also gave me what I was looking for in sort of like a career development. I mean, th- we had things happening there and I was able to hook up as, as being the um, percussion studio TA, I was kind of the go between with Texas performing arts, which is a, a performing arts organization that's on campus. And so their commission, I mean, they're participating in commissions and bringing in artists for huge name people. I mean, we had so come in multiple times. We had eighth Blackbird in residence. We had Glenn Coche come in. He had just commissioned a piece. They had Texas performing arts had helped commission a piece from John Luther Adams for Glenn Coche. And so we have these people coming in and I was the person who was like the go between, you know? And so that, that wound up like, um, you know, I was, got to play first construction with so because obviously there's only four of them you know and so um that kind of stuff and and it was just the right amount of kind of those professional opportunities chances to interact with other artists that were coming through town we had all kinds of people because you're in austin and so um you know tons of people coming through um tons of live music to see you know i remember like we went and saw you know, Antonio Sanchez play with Pat Metheny, like in downtown Austin. It's like, okay, you know, they, they're not coming to Kirksville probably. <laughs> Although Pat Metheny's from Kansas city or at least summit, you know, but, um, but, but, you know, those, those opportunities and then lots of opportunities in the area with, with regional orchestras and teaching opportunities adjunct. So it was like the perfect place to kind of have all those things kind of coalesce at the right time for me getting ready to then, you know, get out in the professional world. And you go to Graceland right after this? Yeah. Yeah. So I went from, there's a contrast. You go from, you know, Austin, which is like, we felt it was so funny because like Austin is on, you know, every list for like best towns for young people to move to up and coming best tech cities and whatever. And we're like, we're the idiots who are moving from there to like rural Iowa, you know, a town, a town of 2,500 people. Um, you know, where like a traffic jam is because you're stuck behind an Amish buggy on the, you know, there's not a stoplight in town. So it's like, so, um, so yeah, I mean, we, that was a huge, huge culture shift, um, going from, going from Austin down to, or up to Lamoni. Was the person who followed you Melinda? Yeah. Cause I, I remember I talked to her, uh, like last year at some point, And I remember she was explaining, um, that like she got to know the Pizza Hut people, I think, really well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was like, maybe you had the same relationship. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you kind of get to know. You kind of get to know. It's the same familiar faces, you know. Which it's it's interesting because when we moved there, people were like, you know, look, we know that it's tiny. Like we get it. Like everybody knows that. But like they were, they everybody hyped up like the community. Like the community is great. The community, the sense of community. And then you leave there and you realize like, whoa, like they were actually right. Cause you have, you know, for us, it was, it was like, you have all these younger faculty members, a lot of people, I mean, there were some people who were there that were full professors and had been there for a long time, but you had a lot of young people in their first jobs. And it's like, you know, there's nothing else to do here except get together and play ultimate Frisbee or hang out or on somebody's deck. And And it was cool because there were people, you know, from all disciplines. I mean, some of my best friends are in the humanities or the visual arts or social sciences. And, you know, and it'd be like, well, we're just going to hang out because 
if we don't, there's nothing else to do. And then you leave and you realize like, man, like they're really onto something, you know, in this tiny town, but yeah. And you know, you know, the people in the restaurants and the gas stations, like you just know everybody. You're right to think uh, in thinking about how when you're so many, particularly if there's a lot of young faculty who this is their first job and they're all coming from larger places and mm-hmm. like, yeah, you're, you, you realize how beneficial it is if you find a group yeah. of people who you're like, we can actually hang out because we literally have nothing else we can do yeah. aside from hanging out. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, get really good at cooking or yep. you, know, you get like... <laughs> Somebody, somebody's going to uh, Des Moines and you're like, here's a shopping list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really good. What was the, tell me what it was like to, on the, um, the gear and facilities contrast when you get to Graceland. Well, so interestingly enough, they had, they had just finished a year before I got to Graceland, a, a revamp of the music building. Um, so they had a, a donor, a family that had donated. It's the Shaw family. And if you're, if, if you have any Canadian podcast followers, they probably know that name because it's Shaw communications up in Canada, which is basically like, it's like, you know, Canada's like Ted Turner or whatever. Like, it's just like this massive, like cable television communications company. And so, I mean, they're this family, they have, you know, they're extremely wealthy. Um, but they had a, so that JR was, who was in charge of the company at that point, he wanted to honor, his parents had given the money for the original Shaw Center and he wanted to fix it up and, you know, kind of honor their legacy and build upon it. So they took the core of the building, which was like a, like a 500 seat um, kind of generic auditorium, you know, um, and they had some classroom spaces on each side of it but they added this huge lobby. They built a brand new, like 110 seat recital hall. That was, I mean, no joke, the nicest recital hall of any institution I've ever been affiliated with. Um, and it's out in the middle of the cornfields in Iowa, you know, and, um, but they had a beautiful black box theater that was just stocked with like the most up-to-date, you know, tech gear for the theater folks. So we had this great facility. Um, and, Instrument wise, luckily when I got hired, they, because they had this initiative to start the marching band, they had secured a bunch of donor funds, not through the Shaws, but through some other folks who wanted to be supportive. So we had money set aside and it was like, okay, well, we, we're going to buy new drums, you know, marching drums. And, and I told them, you know, if you want to start a percussion program, we're going to need more than just drumline equipment. And so, so they were supportive. So we were able to buy a couple five octave marimbas. Luckily they had a few pieces of gear that were in place from the, they'd gotten some good recommendations before when it was just like a band director there. And they had, you know, a set of Adams, you know, balanced action timpani and a nice pearl bass drum and a pearl philharmonic snare drum. And so we just started kind of augmenting that and, you know, we didn't have the quantity of a gear of a place like UT or FSU, but um, qual- I mean, everything we were getting was quality and, and brand new. And I think by the time I left, we had two five octave marimbas, a four and a third. I had my own marimba that I had in my office. So that kind of, we could do a quartet, you know, if we wanted to. Um, we had a couple of nice new Adams vibraphones. We had, um, you know, a good collection of other concert toms and, you know, cymbals and all that stuff. So the, luckily the, the funding was in place to be able to do some of those things, which was really great. As you're, you're working there, at what point do you, 
or at what point are you like, I kind of want to do all percussion because you said you were doing, you were split as is typical for smaller programs. Like, were you just constantly like, I'm going to see what the next thing is? Or was there a point where you're like, okay, it's time. I, I, I am, I may need to get way too invested in other things to get better at them versus what I'm like trained to do and what I really want to do. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think from the beginning, I knew that this was, you know, probably not the place I'm going to retire from. But I, you know, I also didn't expect that I was going to walk out of, you know, my doctor and get hired for my whatever, you know, to be the next uh, wherever big name brand school, you know. So I knew that there was going to be a a progression. My goal, I mean, I I think initially I was just, I mean, when I got the job, there were zero percussion majors. So it was like, you know, and there was that they wanted to start the drum line, but they, you know, had a few students who were like, oh, I'm interested, but. So for, at first I was just like, well, we got to figure this out. You know, like there's no time to be thinking about, well, what jobs are getting posted? And I actually remember the first year I didn't apply, I, you know, I, I didn't even apply to anything else. I just knew like, I'm going to be in this at least for a year and then the end of the second year and just see what happens because I knew that I just needed to, to kind of do that. You know, eventually it got clearer that we were getting closer to the ceiling there. You know, and I don't know, I don't know if I would say we hit it or didn't hit it or whatever. I mean, I had I had some really great students. I had some talented students. They were hardworking. There's some of the greatest people. I still am blessed to keep in touch with them um, and really cherish the four years that I spent there. And I wouldn't trade them for anything. But I think it was clear that like to do some of the things I want to do or to have the time for myself to focus on the things I want to focus on, this you know, just wasn't necessarily the long-term solution. At some point, I started kind of exploring those options and and looking around to see what else might be out there. It was never a desperation kind of situation, you know, so that was, that was nice. <laughs> yeah. So it, and it's interesting because if you think about it, there's always like the point where, you know, when you go for another, like when you would apply for another job, you would go, you know, like, if I don't get this, it's okay. Yeah. And it's like, that's not, that's actually like a really good place to be when right. you <laughs> yeah. that you're like, it's, if I don't get, it's fine. It's yeah. Like next time or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where is that where you were at? Like I'm, I have, a, I'm kind of secure here. Like it's, it'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, a, and I recognize that that's an extremely, privileged position to be in, you know, like to be, and I'm lucky that that Grayson job was a tenure track job. I mean, that was a full-time tenure track position. It was at a really small school and a small program, but you know, I was, I definitely had those thoughts cross my mind that it's like, you know, I, yeah, it's going to, it's okay. One way or the other, it's going to be okay. And that's great. You know? All right. Finish up with a segment called random ask questions. Okay. All right. First question, Adam, is an issue in percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? Lack of well-marked scores by composers. Like trying to teach music musicianship to students when they're just looking at literally dots on a staff. There's no accents. There's no tenutos. There's no staccatos. There's no marcata. It's just like what you know. How how am I supposed to? What how would they know? You know. <laughs> so so I think um, 
Yeah, that's one thing that you just, you know, the limitations of music notation in general, but especially when you get these parts that are kind of just quickly blasted out and published and PDF thrown on somebody's website. And it's like, well, we could do better than that, you know? So do you take it, when that happens, do you take it upon yourself to, to like, okay, well, we get the, we're in the driver's seat in terms of interpretation. Yeah. And I mean, I think, I think that's the case, even when there is, when it is a well-marked score, you know, maybe you have less, less flexibility if you're going directly in opposition to what's marked, but I, yeah, I mean, if there's nothing there, then it's, I mean, we're, we're doing anything, you know, we're looking at what's the title. Can we glean anything from the title of the piece to even talk about the character or can we, what, what the heck can we do here? Um, and yeah. And then it's just, okay, let's start being creative, you know, as much as we can. So, yeah. Gotcha. All right. Next question. What are the ways that you've thought about and in kind of incorporated issues of inclusivity, diversity, equity, in uh you're playing teaching anything like that i mean i try to do as as much as i can i mean it's and there's always more to do there's always things that are that are just you know and you're always up against the systemic issues that are way that we're all operating within so that's hard to you know i mean definitely exposure to different artists and composers through repertoire choices through guest artists that we're bringing in um even just you know, I'm conscious of the fact that when I post or when I share a YouTube video in our, um, in our, you know, studio group message or whatever, our thread, if I'm, if I'm sharing things, it's like, if all I'm sharing are a very narrow range of artists and styles and all of that, you know, that's sending a message sort of implicitly. So, um, trying to, bring in diverse perspectives and, and be appreciative of all those different things that are out there in the world. Um, Cause it's, you know, some of those may resonate with the students. So that, I mean, and then we try to do a lot of one thing that I'm really passionate about is service learning and a lot of community engagement. So we partner with a lot of organizations on our campus. Um, this fall, I'm working on on the final details. We're going to go and chop wood. We're going to take our our final percussion ensemble rehearsals after our concert where they're empty. We have the Jackson County Department of Aging has a spot like a block away from our building. Um, and I know the guy, but he, he was saying, you know, you'd be shocked at the number of people in our community who still rely on on wood firewood as their primary source of heat through the winter and also to run their stove to cook and then you get these people way up the mountain that are elderly that they don't have electricity and they they can't come down to get firewood because they, they can't load it or anything so um so we're going to go over there and help as they're because the, the county delivers it basically through the department of aging so we're going to take percussion students and we're going to go use log splitters and you know and just stack firewood and that kind of stuff. We've done things with domestic violence shelters. We've done food drives. We've done, I mean, the, a, a big range of things, um, commissioning projects. We've done some fundraisers with, with lift music fund and they're providing micro grants to underrepresented students. So, um, just trying to be aware of all of these things and trying to do better. I'm, you know, like I, like I was saying, I was privileged to have the teaching position I was have. Um, I'm privileged to be like a white man from an upper middle class family. You know, it took me longer than it should have to realize these things were out there in the world. Cause for the, my young years, they just, you know, that, that wasn't anything I was dealing with. 
you know, once you start peeling back those layers, you can't unsee it. And so I think there's a responsibility to take action. Yeah. I love the chopping wood thing. I think that's, that's <laughs> awesome. What a, what a, just like a, what a, what a way to be, to be connected to the community. That's just so out of the box, but like yeah. super specific to where, yeah. where you are. Yeah. It's going to be great. I think the yeah. students will love it. They love, yeah. they love, you know, they like doing fundraisers and stuff because we've done a lot of them, but um, anytime they get to like hands-on, you know, that to do something totally different, talk to people they don't get to talk to go somewhere. They don't get to normally go and just have a different experience. That's out of their routine. They're like, we love this When Can we do it again? So, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Uh, other questions. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? <laughs> I had, I've had students on a couple of occasions, not so much, I don't know about my voice, but, or like, you know, necessarily mannerisms or anything, although I'm sure they probably do behind my back, but, um, but they have had, you know, like some dress up days and stuff like that. I tend to in the, in the fall winter months, I tend to wear a fair amount of like uh, plaid flannel and that kind of stuff. And so they'll, I mean, I live in the mountains, so, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, sure. But, um, yeah. So that, you know, they've had days where like, they're all wearing like, you know, brown boots and jeans and like a flannel plaid shirt. And I'll be like, why are you all dressed like this? You know? And I think on one occasion they all have little masks that they held up, you know, with my face, some picture they took off social media or something. Nice. So just yeah. to be clear, just like let, let you know exactly what yeah. they're just in case I missed it, you know, <laughs> I probably walked in and was like, man, you all look great today. You know, like who planned this? Yeah. <laughs> this is the handsomest group of students I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. Really good looking bunch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. What's your biggest kitchen mess up? I love, I love barbecue and like grilling. Mm-hmm. I mean, my constant fear is that I'm going to invite people over to our house. Cause you know, my wife will be like, Adam's really good at barbecue. And then we'll invite people over and I'm constantly worried that it's going to be like ready on time and that it's going to be anywhere decent, you know, and luckily I've avoided those, but I will say, and this was a long time ago, but the first time that I, that I, um, or one of the first times, maybe it wasn't the first time that I went to my, my wife, then girlfriend's house, um, and met her parents and was like hanging around. Um, she was like, you know, you should, you should grill. And I was like, okay. Neither her, her dad is not, he doesn't really grill or anything. Like if somebody's in a grill, her mom does. Um, and, and she was like, you should grill, you know, like that'd be great. That would help mom. And I'm like, sure, sure. I'll, you know, we're just like cooking some brats or something. Yeah, yeah. And so I, um, so I grill them and we're eating and like, you know, everything's fine. And then like, it was like a year later, she's like, you know, those bratwurst you made, like, they weren't done. Like they were still pink. And I'm like, why didn't you say anything? And she's like, well, I didn't want to make you feel terrible, but like, we all knew like, you know, like after, after you left, like, you know, so they were, they had all been like, mm-hmm, these are great brats, you know, and they're like uh, not cooked. And I was like, great, great first impression to make on my future in-laws is I'm going to try to give you food poisoning. Right. So <laughs> yeah. That was, that is like a, you really should have told me. <laughs> yeah, please. We could throw them right back on, you know, like, but I think, yeah, everybody was, you know, trying to be polite. And so, yeah. 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 That's, that's good. <laughs> All right. What's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? A great movie. Like probably my favorite movie is Ghostbusters, the original one. Oh yeah. We're in the right time of year for that too. We are. What's yeah. a terrible movie. 
you know, I don't watch that many movies. What tends to be on in my house anymore is like kids shows and you get, you can tell that there are some of these things that are like low budget, like Netflix just wanted one more thing to like saturate the market for the, you know, like under five demographic. And it's like, this is just garbage, you know, like, or like the acting is so bad or the, or the, you know, just everything. It's so hokey. And like, even my kids are like, eh, it's not that good, you know? And so I'll see those in the background. I'm like, what are we watching? Why are we, why, why, you know? And so I think there's a lot of, I, I tend to find more of those things, you know, now that all these streaming platforms, I feel like there's less, uh, less vetting. Yeah. Do you know Oliver Molina? Yeah. Yeah. I think he had talked, he's talked openly about his love for Bluey. And oh I think God, that's a great show. It's funny is that I don't have kids, but I, I, I've watched a few episodes. I'm yeah. like, I get it. Like it's yeah. actually, it's really good. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I've told my college students. So I was like, do y'all know Bluey? And they're like, oh, what's that? We well, they know what SpongeBob is, but they're like, what's Bluey? And I was like, you all need to go watch Bluey. So it's, it's really great. Yeah. I, I've said it before uh, here that there's a, a show that my nephews are watching called Gumball. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's on like Nickelodeon or something like that. Yeah. But it's very clear that whoever made the show has watched like 30 Rock and The Office and <laughs> So like, there's a lot of like cutaway stuff where you're like, yeah. I know where they did that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and you're like, I get it. This is good. This is good. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a kid's show. It's only for like seven-year-olds. That's uh, awesome. So yeah, it's very cool. Um, do you have, because of your, where you grew up, do you have a sports fandom? Yeah, a lot. I love sports from St. Louis. So baseball, definitely the Cardinals. Um, I like the blues. I'm super excited that St. Louis is getting their soccer team. I love soccer. I actually coach, I actually coached both of my kids soccer teams. My son is seven and my daughter's four. And for the last year or so I've coached their soccer teams, which is like super fun and crazy. You know? <laughs> so, um, so I'm really excited for the new soccer team in St. Louis. The soccer team that I, that I really support is uh, Liverpool, they're my team okay. over in England. Yeah, um, I've yeah. been a fan of theirs for a long time since I was younger. And so just why, love it. why them, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what initially drew me to them. They had a couple of players. Like when I first got really into them in the early two thousands, they had some like, like Steven Gerrard and Fernando Torres and these, these guys who were like, you know, um, I, I don't know what it was about them that initially drew me to them. You know, I, I, maybe it was sort of like the, the man United and the Barcelona, they seemed a little too like obvious. And I was like, Oh, these guys seem cool. Like they're good, but they're not like as, you know, over commercialized. And then I've, I've, you know, later, you know, learning more about Liverpool, it's like this very blue collar working class, you know, like place. And I'm, I, so that kind of, I can connect with their, their sort of vibe. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I watch every match that I can and, um, sometimes like, Oh man, you, cause they're playing at eight o'clock at night in England and it's, you know, two in the afternoon here. And I'm like, Oh, I got a lesson to teach, you know, but <laughs> you know, I'm like, can I pull up this? Can I watch this game? Like in the background on my computer, like in between lessons or, um, so anyway, so I love them. I love, um, I love college football. You know, I cheer, I follow FSU and UT and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm trying to think any other sports teams. I feel like I'm probably, I love Duke basketball. Um, sorry. Sorry. I actually like, I actually like Duke when I, um, when I was in elementary school, like a family member went on a trip and brought back like a Duke sweatshirt, you know, and you're a little kid. And so you're just like, Oh, okay, cool. Duke, I'll be a fan of theirs. And then ever since then it just stuck. So, (laughs) Oh, 
All right. So it's got glad see now I know that now. Um yeah. but yeah, that's uh that's dangerous information. I went you to like undergrad and okay, but I always like Duke was always the school I never yeah. So. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because in St. or in Missouri, you get no, you know, like nobody cares. Like Duke, North Carolina, whatever. People are just like, oh, okay. And then you move to North Carolina and people are like, wait, are you a Duke? Are you a Tar Heel? Like, and it's like Everybody settled down. You know? <laughs> like, no, we're not settling down. This is, this yeah. is important. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a good comment. Um, are you, are you looking forward to the World Cup? I am. Yeah, it's weird that it's in the like the winter time because it's in Qatar. So, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's fun. I'm glad the U.S. is back in it. I'm curious to see how they'll do. And I, some of my favorite players are either injured or they play for national teams that didn't make it. So that's kind of a bummer. But um, I'm I'm hoping that that means they'll get to rest and then they'll come back super fresh for the rest of the club season of course. where everybody else gets worn down, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I love, I mean, I, soccer is just one of those sports and, and my family loves it. Like my kids play and they're not super serious, but they, they like watching it. And my wife likes watching it. It's just one that we can like, you know, even if Liverpool isn't playing, I'll be making breakfast on a Saturday morning and just put it on my iPad up on the counter and it could be anybody, you know, and it's, it's, it's great. So I love that for sure. Yeah. That part is, is when it's like, it's, if it's a morning thing, it's like, it's even better because you're like, yeah, the rest of the day. Yeah. (laughs) There's a great, I don't know if you ever get over how often you're in St. Louis. There's a great soccer bar called Amsterdam Tavern down near Tower Grove. And they'll do, they'll do these like, um, like 6 a.m. Like, you know, on like they open at 6 a.m. with the bar for people to come and like start watching matches, you know, and it's they're there ready to go pouring beers at 6 a.m. for people to watch their team. So it's great. Those are fun environments. We have in Columbia, we have a couple, there's a couple of places that that are like the um American Outlaws. Okay. Kind of yeah. for, for the soccer stuff. So yeah. if it's, particularly in the summer, if it's like a big gold cup game or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, I'll frequently go there because you're just around the other people who care yeah. about it. Yeah. It's, it's so fun. fun. Yeah. yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite book? Yes. My favorite book is uh, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Whoa. All right. That's, I, I read that not too long ago and I, yeah. and I, why that book for you? I love the way the story unfolds and, and like how you're kind of these paths are like converging. Um, but I love, I mean, I love the whole, the whole, like, um, the idea with like Tim Schull. I actually have Tim Schull tattooed on my arm, but, um, wow. but like I, you know, that the whole idea of like, you know, being able to like be in control of your destiny and like, um, and that whole idea, I just, I love it. So, yeah. And I love the complexity of the characters that, you know, it's, that's one of my favorite things in TV or books or movies or anything. You know, I, I feel like I've more and more gotten into shows where, um, the characters aren't just like good or bad. You don't just look like, it's like, you know, at different times you're like, Oh, I'm so mad at you, but also I love you. But also like, and then it's like, well, that's just how people are. You know, people are complicated and complex and sometimes they do things and you know, so um, yeah. Well, it's kind of, fun. I mean, with that book in particular, it's kind of fun because you have like the two brothers and like mm-hmm. their different paths and like the, the yeah. uh, influences like, like the like father influence on one versus another. Mm-hmm. Um, 
leaving coming back and yeah there's so much that's in there because it's like it should be people don't know it's like 700 pages it's a long yeah 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 <laughs> it's worth it though it's worth it yeah it yeah. doesn't feel like 700 pages i don't think you know yeah. some books are like 100 pages and they feel like 700 pages and that one's like 700 and to me it felt like it just like flew by yeah yeah it's super good gotcha where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to uh, we're planning a trip to Scotland this summer with our family, which should be awesome. fun. I love, I love whiskey. Um, and I love the kind of British Isles. And so that's, we've been to Ireland, we've been to England, we've been to Wales. Um, so we're going to go, we're, we're doing a trip to Scotland and my wife's family is all, uh, her, her dad's side is all from Scotland. Like their last wow. name is Douglas. So it's like, so, you know, we're going to go and, um, there's a lot of family connections and, um, so that's a place, I mean, I really would love to go to Germany, uh, um, that's a place that has always interested me that I haven't been able to get to, but you know, I love traveling. I'll go about anywhere. So <laughs> what is the origin of your last name? German. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's German. So, um, yeah, we've, we've got some, the, my family has traced it back to some specific cities and stuff. So we, whenever that trip happens, we'll have some, some goals to, to go places. <laughs> nice. When you, next question, when you come back to the St. Louis area, if you're visiting mm -hmm. family stuff, where is a place where you have to eat, you have to get this food before you see anyone? Like, like it has to be in my mouth. And then I am like, now I'm ready. I can actually talk to people because I've had the food that I've been craving. I mean, I do love Emo's pizza. Mm -hmm. So I got to get my St. Louis style pizza. Okay. And and T-Ravs. Other place, I'm trying to, gosh, I feel like, I feel like there's so many places that we normally go. And now of course I'm like blanking on all of them. Um, not all of them are St. Louis. They're just things that we don't have here, you know? So sure. like we love to go to like Shake Shack down. Yeah, yeah. We'll take the kids to the zoo and then go to like the Shake Shack near Forest Park. Um, <laughs> I love going to Urban Chestnut, the breweries. They've got a good beer hall with a lot of really good food. Um, speaking of German stuff, <laughs> German food, um, let's see, where else do I, I mean, if we get a chance to go for barbecue at like Pappy's, that's always good. Um, other places we've been the last couple of times we've been there, we've gone, you know, we've gone down to the Hill to eat mm -hmm. Italian food and there's too many good places to count down there. So that's, that's always a good, a good bet. I mean, there's a, a Kaluwi doesn't isn't loaded with just Italian restaurants you would walk into just we have a really great one actually a really great Italian like a it's like a Appalachian sourced or Appalachian influence influence Southern Italian like thing and the chef is actually like legit I mean really great so we have we have a good Italian place um, we have a lot of breweries but we don't have um, yeah. St. Louis not a place where you could, where the menu is just like pasta and tomato sauce and only, and it's just like what pasta shape kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're, I don't, I don't necessarily have anywhere that it's like, we have to get this. Maybe my wife would say Ted Drew's for frozen custard. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, and that's great. You know, so um, that's definitely a good one. Nice. All right. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. When I was in high school, I did karaoke at the Missouri State Fair. We, some other people in my high school band, we sang Backstreet Boys. It was you wanted that way. Uh, yeah, 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 actually, um, I'm not sure the audience wanted it that way, but they got it. <laughs> you know? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So that was probably as terrible as it sounds. Um, gosh, I, I'm trying to think. I, you know, the first story, like I've been fairly lucky. I feel like I need to knock on wood. You know, like I've been fairly lucky to not have anything truly catastrophic happen. My couple years ago here at Western, we were doing Evan Chapman's Honeybee. And it's you dip that you have the little handbells and you dip them in the things of water to bend the pitch. And like two thirds of the way through the piece, my student had put a tub of water on a music stand and the stand gave way. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Water went every luckily it was the last piece on the concert, but I mean, like just mid performance, it's just like, whoosh, you know, goes everywhere. <laughs> and so he was quite surprised. Yeah, um, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, but I was like, that's why I wouldn't put anything on a music stand ever, you know? <laughs> so the last question, Adam, what one piece of art could be music or movies, books or podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. I'll, I'll give you two sure. in the music realm. I've been taking way more inspiration lately from like pop music, electronic music, you know, like I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not somebody who like drives around in my car listening to Beethoven, you know, like I'm sure those, I, I know those people exist, you know, and I'm maybe, I don't think my students think I'm that person, but, but I'm much more interested in like pop music and, and kind of, electronic music and kind of finding those things. And so being inspired by more artists that are doing that kind of stuff, as opposed to sort of quote unquote classical music, visual arts. I mean, I think well, somebody, well, hang on. so anyone in sorry. particular on the pop, I mean, there's a ton of people like Billie Eilish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I love, I love the band um, AJR. Um, if you're no, familiar no. with them at all, it's three brothers. Um, they're, they do a ton of stuff with electronics and sampling and, and everything. Uh, I mean, they write like straight up pop music. I mean, it's like pop music through and through. Um, but it's, if you listen to it, I think if you listen to it as like a musician, um, you're kind of like, Oh, like these guys are smart. Like they have like all these like very subtle little things that are woven into it. You're like, Oh, like there's more going on. You know, you can listen to it as just like, kind of like surface level pop music. But if you like really dig deep, it's, there's a lot going on. That's really intelligent and and a high level of craft. We've got tickets to see Marcus Mumford next week on his solo tour in Asheville. So I'm excited about that. I don't know. I feel, I feel like I can kind of connect with that on, on these different levels, both as like a sort of a professional musician, but also like it, it's, I don't know, feels fresh because it's not something that we're doing all the time but i like to bring those influences in or do pieces that are inspired by that kind of stuff gotcha and what was the visual artist uh soloit is kind of one of my big um it's probably my favorite visual artist i first got exposed to his work when i was doing the bang on a can summer festival at mass mocha mass mocha has like the biggest collection of lewitt works in the world i think at least as far as i know in the world and I love just his sort of conceptual approach and it, it very much connects with my, a lot of the things that I try to do musically. I mean, and, and the conceptual stuff and like things like with cage or um, just the idea of, you know, like, I don't know if you know much about Saul Lewitt, but no, he like, uh, so he, he'll, when you buy a Lewitt, you don't actually get any, you get a set of instructions basically. Oh, okay. And then you have to have drafts people create in most of them. Some of them are actually created, but he has like this series of wall drawings that it's like you choose the wall that you're going to put it on and you get the instructions and then you have drafts people that actually 
create it following the instructions. So it's it's kind of cool, kind of like a build your own thing. But it's also it's always these very simple concepts or ideas that you see and you're like, wow, that's really that's really cool. I I know at Mass Mocha, they you know the the tour guides would tell you know they'd have these people say like, well, anybody could do that. Like any, you know, when it's just like in, you know, divide a wall in four quadrants in this quadrant have all thin vertical lines in this quadrant have all thin horizontal lines in this quadrant have the both lines. And in this one, well, and people are like anybody and they're like, ah, but they didn't, you know, like, like like I could do that. It's like, but did you No, you didn't, you know? (laughs) So, so, um, I, but I like that. I like that. It's kind of this very simple, like kind of every, every day kind of, like, yeah, like you, you could, you know, you could buy a Lewitt and do it. Like there's nothing necessarily technically crazy about it. The results are, are, can be very beautiful and very interesting. And, um, so I like, I like that. Really fun to get a chance to talk to Adam here. It was great to see and chat with him at PASIC and to see his group. And I look forward to seeing where things go for him moving forward in the great wilderness that is Western North Carolina. I will also state right now to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, to visit PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes for all episodes and show notes, to listen on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts to like the Facebook page, Pete's Percussion Podcast, where you can follow me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or contact me by email at petesperkpod at gmail.com. I'm getting this out of the way right now to leave room and finish this week's episode with a very special rave. This week's rave is an appreciation for the life of one of Marching Mizzou's own, Alex Jackson. Amidst all the wonderful things that happened when Marching Mizzou prepared and performed in New York City, we were keeping in mind and in our hearts the health of one of our own mellophone players and music education majors, Alex Jackson. Alex came to Mizzou in the fall of 2019 and immediately made a major contribution to the ensemble as a whole and to the entire Mizzou music community through his excellent playing and his pleasant and easygoing nature. He also apparently had not only a great sense of humor, which I knew, but a very dark one as well, which I really enjoy hearing about, as some of the folks who've told stories about him have attested to. Things seemed to be going well for Alex until he was incredibly unfortunately diagnosed with stomach cancer 20 months ago. According to some data, while no cancer is great, The nature of stomach cancer is such that it usually only gets detected at a late stage, making it very hard to rid the body of. Alex got treatment and was healthy enough to come back for a bit over the past 18 months, and he was able to join us back from time off to start this season. He did pretty well for the first month or so, and he joined us and made it to the Kansas City Chiefs game that we played in mid-September. Unfortunately, according to his folks, the cancer that he had mutated, and he was unable to keep up with treatments that would alleviate his suffering, 
and he had to make a decision to eventually go into hospice care for the final couple of weeks of his life. Alex made it all the way to see Marching Bazoo perform at the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and then he passed away later that same afternoon. As I speak to you now, I've just returned from Marching Mizzou practice, where post-practice, we held a candlelight vigil in honor of Alex at the Banfield. We were joined by his parents and sister, members of the administration, other community members, and current Marching Mizzou students. There was a performance from the Mizzou Horn Choir, directed by our horn professor, Amanda Collins, along with a speech from Amanda, who was his private teacher, another from the student chapter president of Kappa Kappa Psi, which Alex was a brother in, Brandon Merritt, and a final truly heartbreaking speech from one of the Marching Mizzou Mellophone section leaders, Alexis Waltrip. It was both a beautiful and a very difficult event, and one folks there won't forget soon. Alex died just before turning 21, which leads to two separate thoughts for all of you listening. One, it is really hard to read in his obituary that he survived not only by his parents, but also some of his grandparents, because that's not how that ever is supposed to go. And... It is good and right to allow yourself the chance to grieve in situations like this. You should both grieve and celebrate because this is how we know that someone who has passed has really made an impact in our lives. And that grief should hurt. And conversely, the celebration should be among the most uplifting. We will miss you, Alex, and we'll never forget you.